Hello and welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. This is a Zoom recording of a rambunctious and high energy conversation with two amazing global health leaders, Purnima Mane, a board member of the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, and Gita Rao Gupta, senior fellow at the UN Foundation. It's the third of an ongoing conversation about the continuing COVID-19 crisis in South Asia and in India particularly. And a reminder that if you want to learn more about how you can help, please consider visiting parivarbayarea.org or bayareaglobalhealth.org. You can find more episodes on our YouTube channel and on our website, A Shot in the Um podcast, or wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Shot Arm Podcast. Hold on to your horses and hope you find the conversation interesting and informative. And finally, have a great week and a safe week, everyone. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Ben. So my first question for you both really is around your backgrounds. And Gita, uh, maybe I could start with you. What, what got you interested in global health equity and human rights? So we should first clarify, Ben, that Punima and I are cousins, <laughs> that we share, <laughs> we are mothers with sisters, and, um, and that has a lot to do with our upbringing because there were strong women, strong women role models for both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and my interest in women's rights and gender inequalities that uh, have tremendous negative impacts for women came out of growing up in India, seeing the inequalities that are so stark there based on gender and um, studying that through my research. So my research was on the role conflicts that women experienced in India um, and wanting to do something about it. So that's, that's what motivated me was what I saw around me. We were sheltered in our families um, with very strong women role models. So we didn't experience it And I didn't even know that these existed till I stepped out and went to college and then began to hear from my peers about what their lives were like and the limited choices they had to shape their own destinies. And so that's what motivated me. That's, that's where, that's what led me down this path. And um, my mother was in health. She was a doctor. She was a public health specialist. Um, And so um, health became what by osmosis almost I learned about. I don't have a public health degree. I have my background is in psychology, but it's um, what I learned most about through dinner conversations, particularly between my mother and my aunt, Purnima's mother, who was also in public health. Um, And reproductive health was what they worked on mostly. They worked on family planning issues. So Purnima, did, uh, did Gita, your mother and your aunt, drive you in the same way? Yeah, I, th- I, I, I don't think the best thing they did was they didn't drive us in any way. We were driven by our, you know, the, the way they worked. They did, never, ever pushed us down any path. Do what you want was what, uh, you know, that, that's what we learned, that it is possible that women can make good choices because around us we were seeing women who were, choices were being made for them. They didn't have anything to say. Whereas in our case, it was, what do you want to do? What are you interested in? Which was very empowering. But I want to mention three things in addition to what Gita said, which are, um, I thought are relevant. One is we also had very powerful fathers, mm-hmm. extremely empowering fathers, both of us, who believed in women, 
you know, doing their own thing and encouraged us along the way. It's very important because men often don't do that. And in India, it's, it's even harder. The second thing is uh, we also had a grandmother who was a working woman and uh, was in education. And that's also quite, you know, unusual to see that um, kind of history. And I recall my son once asking of a woman who wasn't working, is she ill? And he was four. <laughs> Because he just assumed everybody works, all women work. So, you know, it was a good thing for him to see. And I think the third thing we want to mention is the connection with the Bay Area. Uh, both our mothers uh, studied at Berkeley and did their course in public health. So it's amazing how many connections you can think about. But yes, I think the path has been more or less the same. Even though my degree was in social work in the field of health, and I, but my uh, doctoral thesis was very similar. It was on how women manage dual roles, um, you know, at, and, and I did it during the um, International Women's Year. So that's, that's the year when I started the thesis. And Geeta was along the way, though she's younger than me. Yes, just to say, I was, <laughs> I was, I was inspired by Purnima's um, thesis and this research work to sort of pursue that same line of role conflicts that women faced. And but how- I have to say, Ben, that both of us have uh, fired each other in our own ways as yeah. well. We've continued the tradition and hope we can continue it for our um, children and grandchildren. Oh, I have no doubt. Um, but Panima, there's one other aspect to your career that I just want to throw out, which I found very inspiring. Yes, yes. You were, you were an actor and a singer. <laughs> and if I remember correctly, you were Mary Magdalene in um, Jesus Christ Superstar. Yes, I was. And I, because my parents come from theater. So, you know, watching that, it was a big, and my brother became a singer after that. So, yes, but you don't know about Gita, very few people know. And I only, I can tell you that she was an actor too, and a model, <laughs> so, you know, we've all had these multiple careers and, and very well known for her work. So I think it just was do, do what you can, do what you love and do it as long as you want to. And that's I what to say. I don't I don't brag about being a fashion model because of my identity as a feminist. But it was a feminist thing to do at that moment in time to yes. be out there and be a model. Agree. See, I was going to ask if there was some secret other career that you had as Panima had. I, I think that is fantastic. And um, it's really interesting to see how um, feminists have taken over aspects of the fashion industry. Not entirely, but that's for another, another conversation. So sh shall we get right into it um, about COVID-19? And um, I want to take you back to the beginning of... 2020. Um, and for me, I was, believe it or not, in Cambodia, uh, meeting with a group of HIV activists, and we were trying to stop uh, primarily Indian ARV, antiretroviral uh, medications, medications for HIV, stop them from uh, supplying the China market that was 
um, with no evidence at all, trying to buy up antiretrovirals as a way of treating COVID-19. And uh, as a result, uh, there were supply issues for people with HIV in uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, uh, Laos and parts of Myanmar that, you know, were at risk of not getting their their uh, their HIV medications. And uh, I came back via Korea, uh, Seoul, and uh, as I was waiting to connect for my next plane, uh, the announcement came on that everybody had to wear a mask. Uh, you know, there was uh, all, all the restaurants in the airport were to close. People were to wear masks. And if their flight wasn't necessary, they were they were required to go home. So it was it was quite a shock. And I it's at that point that I thought, you know, this is going to be much bigger than um, the SARS uh, uh, outbreak that we had uh, in the early 2000s. So what was it like for you? And, and Gita, could I start with you? Yes, so I was, I was actually in India doing uh, work on the 3D program for girls and women that I was leading at that time and um, was on my way back when um, I remember wearing a mask because every now and then, but looking around and noticing that others weren't. So I was going from India to the US <laughs> and both countries, as you know, um, came to the realization late that they needed to act. So I didn't quite you know, fully absorb the fact that this was going to be a pandemic, unlike your journey from, uh, from Asia where it was already recognized. Um, so it wasn't till I came back and I serve on the Independent Oversight and Advisory Committee for WHO's um, program on health emergencies. And it was in some of those committee meetings that I realized that this was going to really be much bigger than most people thought it would be. So it took a while. I didn't realize, I thought we could go back to India for our next trip um, in June was my prediction in 2020. So it certainly did not happen. Um, and for you, Panima, I know we were talking a lot last year about how this was playing out, but when, when did you realize that this was something more than we were perhaps originally thinking? I think, uh, you know, the news media in India have covered COVID extensively. For me, when I landed, I was in India too. It's strange, the India connection, also because there was a family wedding. So I, I was in India and at the airport, I saw everybody masked, gloved, and I kept saying, why are they doing this? Are they anticipating COVID to go really big beyond China? Why is India so, you know, prepared? Which was unusual for me to see everybody at the airport, all the staff, I mean, um, and asking us to keep a bit of distance, which was not something I had heard in, in, in the U.S. when I left the U.S. So, uh, you know, we had maybe different experiences, also different points of time when we entered India. When I came back, uh, I think the story started coming from India when we had the lockdown here and the graphic kind of presentations uh, that we saw on video, as well as people talking about their experiences was really what made me, what shook me and made me start looking. I also knew that my colleague, my earlier boss, actually, Dr. Obeid, as was Gita on this committee in the WHO, she was on the 
independent panel that was uh, uh, you know set up for pandemic preparedness and she would feed me in not too much information because she wasn't allowed to do that at, at the early stages but at least the formation of this committee made me feel that this is serious finally the world is waking up after sars and avian flu and you name it we've had so many of these ebola we're finally waking up but before that of course there was the after that there was the lockdown here and things became you know very very serious so as for india i think just the presentation that i saw um visually is what really hit me so let's let's turn to india um i mean i'd love to talk about the the broader public health uh, response but we can come on to that uh, so india last year has a very strict uh, shutdown and major disruptions to people getting back to villages and then and then here we are in 2021 with really possibly one of the most serious outbreaks in the world to date now i know you know south america is also seeing significant uh, increases in infections i know that you know we know that um parts of africa are also uh, now beginning to to uh, you know have to respond really aggressively but can we talk about the current pandemic in india and firstly i just want to check in with you both uh, I hope your friends and family are okay. I, I I know we all know someone who unfortunately has died in this particular outbreak. But what have your feelings been about this over the last last month or so? And um, you know, Panima, perhaps I could start with you. If you're talking about feelings, I think my first reaction was utter disbelief. I just said. no no not again it can't get to this level but i think from there i very quickly moved to you know trying to find out what's happening focusing on action orientation but watching the india pandemic if you're talking just about india there was a sense of despair i'll be honest which is very unlike me i i try not to be that way we are public health specialists we should be focusing on what can be done and what should not be done but as an individual who lives lived in india for many many years and then moved away i was it was a personal kind of uh, sense i had and so i was a sense of helplessness that took over for a while only after starting to work with the bay area global health alliance and you know starting to do uh, connect with people there i felt a bit more sense geeta is a little bit more involved she can tell you about the oversight committee i am not involved in those kind of committees and i th- i did feel at times that i wish i could help more all i did was keep in touch with the people who were working in india stayed in touch with my family and friends and sent my best wishes and I, that i was always there for them as well as kept in touch with how india was responding to the pandemic and we can talk about that later i do think panima that the work that that we have done uh with sarah anderson from the uh, bay area global health alliance has uh, really brought together different parts of the indian diaspora that is based here in the bay area mm-hmm. and and i think 
uh, one of the things that's been most intriguing to me is that the tech community, um, the global health community and the LGBT community have really come together. I don't think they've really done this before. And it's been really interesting to me how, you, you know, you've been able to, how shall I put this, kick ass to get people to talk to each other. You know, HIV had that impact as well a long time ago, but I think even more constituencies are coming together and faster than they did with HIV. HIV took a long time to get them there. And in this case, I think they were up there as soon as things started happening. So, so Geeta, from your perspective, both, both personally and with your work with the WHO, how's it been over the last month or so? Deep, deep sadness is what I feel very uh, early on. Unfortunately, when India was hit, we lost one of our program partners on the work that I'm doing. Um, a 50-year-old activist, fiery warrior type of woman who fought for the cause of those who were most vulnerable for her lifetime. And I had to hold a memorial service for her with our program partners that was just heartbreaking with her husband and daughter on the call. There were several people we knew, obviously, who were, uh, who were ill, but who uh, fortunately recovered. Um, but each of them knew others who had died, who had struggled. Who, um, so, you know, so the feeling of despair that Purnima talked about was certainly there among all of us. Deep feeling of frustration, sadness that it had come to this. Um, anger, frankly, that it had come to this in India, a country that has so many resources, has the most talent in medicine that you can imagine, yeah. that it has shared with the world, um, that India should be in this state was just unbelievable. And, and this feeling of helplessness that we couldn't do much. So you organized in the Bay Area, I sort of peripherally was involved um, through our partners in Pune, um, in Maharashtra, in India, in trying to get the organizations we worked for. There was a Waste Pickers Union that we worked with, and Waste Pickers in Pune are informal, semi-formal workers who are daily wage earners who uh, were deemed to be essential workers and so had to step out and collect garbage because the city still had to be kept clean. Um, but they were not protected. They were not. They didn't have the money and the resources to be able to protect their own people, their own families. So helping that organization raise money through an initiative that was US-wide called India COVID SOS, which involved many of the partners that you are working with in the Bay Area, but others from other parts of the country that set up a website where they listed people who they had done the due diligence on, organizations that should get money were able to get foreign money. Um, and so I sort of channeled the organizations that I worked with to that website and helped them raise money, but gave money myself. That was as much as we could do from this end. So um, yes, on that front, in terms of India, felt terribly, still feel very helpless and um, don't quite know what to do. But luckily, because I was on this committee for WHO, the IOAC, um, I was able to um, at least get an insight into what worked and what didn't work with the multilateral mechanisms that are supposed to protect the world, right? That are supposed to uh, provide an early warning system and saw firsthand how that did not work this time around. 
and learned that what, what, um, what we presumed is that public health professionals and experts, when they raised the alarm that their governments will act, wasn't true. That the public health professionals did not have the power nor the leverage to kickstart a political response. So what came through clearly um, from my work on the committee was that um, the public health emergency of international concern alarm that was set off by WHO and the emergency committee was not sufficient to, to result in political reaction in many countries um, because of the lack. So there's sort of a governance ecosystem that the public health professionals have very little control over. And that's the problem. That's the gap now that hopefully needs to be fixed in the future. So, if, I, if I may intervene here on one point is, uh, Gita said that the public health professionals do not have, I completely agree. My problem is with the whole thing is I don't understand and feel frustrated by the fact that there have been several committees that have gone before all of these committees that have provided recommendations which have not been implemented. They have been under-resourced in order to implement them. Political will in many instances lacking. So my only frustration is, yes, I got excited that there are this, this activities happening, but I, I, I wonder whether that activity will pan out to prepare the world for another pandemic and to get us out of this one. Because somewhere, some, one of these three ingredients that I mentioned and also involving the community is another important one, seems to be no, not that strong. And we go back to the same thing. We'll have another COVID or another thing and we'll be again talking about the same thing, which that would be a terrible thing for us to happen if the world doesn't learn. So, Panima, you and I worked at UNAIDS, I think almost, I think, we had some time together. Um, you went on to the Global Fund, uh, AIDS, TB and Malaria, and I was actually chair of, God help me, the resource, the first resource mobilization committee, which was designed to get private sector money into the Global Fund. And that was like getting blood out of a stone. But I, I suppose the question for both of you, I, well, first of all, from the outside now, looking at these various committees and various approaches, it felt to me that we had a post-Second World War um, sort of global compact that had been created really for the world that, that had come together after the, the Second World War. And it was really not... It was not responding in the in the right way that, yes, there were committees and subcommittees and there were recommendations and they were actually good recommendations. Um, and, and all credit to colleagues in WHO for pushing this now, World Health Organization, pushing this. But it didn't seem to make a difference. Ultimately, this is about political will. Mm. And, you know, I, I really would love your sense of why, why is that? Why is it a go-to for, first of all, national governments to downplay, uh, to, you know, over the last decades, you know, pull and weaken funding from the public health infrastructure? You know, um, I've got to get Margaret Atwood into this conversation, um, one of my favourite authors, and I've been going back and reading 
uh, the Mad Adam trilogy, which is, of course, about, uh, in this case, a, um, well, it's about a pandemic. But, but why, and she talks, you know, she calls this speculative fiction, but in many, in many ways, it's exactly how we're playing out. Why is it that doing nothing or downplaying is such a go-to response from governments? It's it's denial, right? It's the first response to any crisis, whether you're an individual or a government, is denial. And you, as a government leader, feel that if you make too much of a crisis, that there will be panic, and they will. I mean, that is the that is the problem. Is that? um, But it wasn't all political leaders who reacted like that, Ben. So it's important to remember that there was. There were some who denied it and took the, took a long time responding adequately, and there were others who recognized what needed to be done and acted. So it's not every political leader. So it's a particular kind of political leadership that we need, and that matters. It really matters. And that is the thing that in democratic countries, external actors have the least influence over. It's the people. It's the people who elect their, their people into power, right? And in non-democratic countries that are ruled by autocrats, you have even less control over what those autocrats do. So the the challenge for us is how do you get countries to hold each other accountable for a a happenstance such as a pandemic that doesn't understand borders, right? So everybody is affected if one country responds incorrectly or inappropriately or late. what is the mechanism by which those countries that respond poorly can be held accountable? That's what I keep trying to grapple with. That was supposed to be our multilateral system. That was supposed to be the National Secu- the, the Security Council in the UN, right? Exactly. That isn't working anymore. So there are, I, in my mind, many questions about the... Um, about the sort of effectiveness of the existing multilateral system that you cannot expect WHO, for example, it got criticized in a big way during this pandemic for not making uh, countries act, but they cannot. They are they're governed by member states yeah. and member states, they cannot tell, they can only advise, they can suggest, they can recommend, but they cannot hold member states accountable. So. It is member states that have to hold each other accountable and we need to think about what is the mechanism that can make that happen. And that's what this panel, independent panel for uh, pandemic preparedness has recommended as one mechanism where heads of state need to be, need to come together in some kind of a council where they can, uh, specifically for pandemics, where they can hold each other accountable and discuss at the highest level because to have the head of the public health system be the one calling for it, when that person has to go through the health minister, maybe even a boss between the health minister and that person, before they can ever get to the political leadership, it takes too long, it's not sufficient, it doesn't result in quick action. So this issue about how do you get political leaders to do the right thing and who will hold them accountable when their actions have a negative impact on millions around the world is the issue that we need to grapple with. And I don't think there's an easy solution to that. No, I think because Gita, there are, as you said, there are multiple ways in which to handle them. And depending on the kind of 
um, government and the kind of democracy or not, you know, it, that exists in the country, um, change can be brought about. But people in the country make a huge difference. But I want to mention two factors that we, uh, you know, I will keep on coming back to. And one is WHO and how it is resourced, equipped, and how it is fortified in some ways in terms of its functioning. You know, it cannot enter a country to study a pandemic without the country allowing it to enter. I mean, that is ridiculous if it's going to impact on the rest of the world. So those kind of actions now are on the table in terms of how WHO can be strengthened, not just by giving money, though money is important because they are under-resourced, but also making it and having an autonomy that right now doesn't exist. And secondly, governments investing more in health per se. Gita and I were talking before this and we discovered, I mean, we know this, but we didn't realize how, how awful it was that India uses 1.28% of its GDP for health. The U.S. it's 17 percent. Even Kenya it's seven percent. It's more in uh, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, two percent, three percent. We're 1.28 percent in India. Now that itself creates a base which makes it very difficult. So that's another thing to remember in the context of all the you know political and other discussions. And that's the investment. Oh, ben. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, that's the investment in public health, right? Yes. It's, it's yes. health for the masses. Yes. What India did was it allowed the private sector to provide yes. the highest quality care for yes. a price, right? Whereas the, the quality of care that was provided through the government public system was of such poor quality that even the poor preferred to pay a little in order to get better quality care. And that's because the country did not invest. It didn't invest in that government system sufficiently. And yeah. the middle class and the upper middle class and the rich, you know, benefited from the private sector system. And so didn't pay attention. There was no real advocacy for in increasing the investment in the public system. And, and now when you find that the private sector system cannot cope with the demands on it now, right because the public system has failed, has completely fallen apart, um, everybody's suffering. So for the first yeah. time, the middle class and the upper middle class and the wealthy are realizing yes. the impact of inequity. It's a fundamental inequity that exists and has persisted for decades in India yeah. that is now affecting them. Now for self-serving reasons, we hope, there will be strong advocacy and a demand from the government to do more to bolster the public health system, the, the government-run system. Interesting that you uh, you mentioned this point, Gita, because now it's the it's those who are advantaged who are lobbying for better health. It's yeah. very interesting because they didn't need to lobby before; they could just pay and get the services. Now, I heard yesterday in a webinar of a very elite woman say that however much you have money, whatever contacts you have, you can't get that bed anymore. And that is for her the biggest despair ever. And it really struck a chord 
uh, in terms of what Geeta is saying. So I think the question of equity is one I want to pick up on. Um, and India is a really good example of this. Here we are in a second wave um, the the health system in all of its forms and um you know panima you sent me uh some information that hesperian had put out about how this is affecting you know the staff that um you know manage the cremations the uh the rituals yeah yeah uh but of course the other area of inequity in india of course is that it's the world's largest manufacturer of vaccines mm-hmm. And how can it be that a vaccine rollout in India could not happen, did not happen? Um, and, and that's a sense of uh, the sort of perhaps broader lack of equity and political will that exists in India. How, how do we fix that? It's a lack of coordination by the government. I mean, it's a complete... There was a complacency after the first wave that there wouldn't be a second wave. There was an opening up of the, of you know, public participation in elections, in uh, religious events. Yes. None of that was clamped down upon. It was far too soon to allow for that kind of, um, you know, uh, opening up. And and I think that India is paying a price for those poor decisions by the government. So, yes. and the vaccine investments made by the government have been very limited. I mean, the Serum Institute, based in Pune, um, got most of its capital to produce this vaccine from private private sources and from the Gates Foundation and from others, right? right? That's right. Not from from the Indian government, even though it did make a commitment to provide vaccines to the Indian government. So that when it came time then for production, um, it wasn't able to, maybe maybe they overpromised, I don't know, but they couldn't produce. I think Gita, what I what I heard was, um, and this was in a formal setting discussion, was that India didn't place as many orders for the vaccine, anticipating that the there would that not be a done. second wave. Yeah. Whereas the rest of the world, in fact, sent in money and put in their orders very early, and so a Serum Institute in was you know fulfilling those orders. When India came in and said, no, now, you know, we have to get priority. You can't give it to anybody else. So there's a lot of uh, uh, planning that was very, very poor as well. The desire to convince um, the people that the epidemic is gone and it's, you know, we are not, we don't have to worry about it. We'll take the vaccine, but it's not such a big deal has now changed. And now there is a sense of panic. And that's why we have a problem where Indians who are getting easily vaccinated, even before the Americans, for example, now are waiting for forever. The ones who didn't get vaccinated or can't even get their second dose. This is well, that this was is happening in too. I, I got to say, I was chasing my parents every day, saying, "Have you got a date for your second vaccine?" Oh no, they'll tell us in two or three months' time. Well, no, 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 no. The data doesn't support that. There's, you know, these drugs got preliminary. These vaccines got preliminary approval uh, on the basis of, you know, up to twenty-five days or so. No, Ben. In Europe, it is up to three months. I have heard this from other countries as well. So I don't understand where the new data has come in. We haven't heard it. We've always heard it should be within a month. 
if it is as a second dose, but it, obviously there's some new data they have no, no, that they're allowing. Different vaccines have different periods. Between no, no, I'm vaccines. talking about the one, the two most prominent ones that we talk about uh, in the U.S., are being given, but at three-month intervals. So I don't know what this is, and we should probably not go there. We are not scientists. But this is something that is also troubling, because if you've had your first dose, which had was the case with my uh, sister-in-law, who had COVID, by the way, uh, and she had the vaccine, and her second dose was scheduled much, much later. Mm. Well, look, one other question about equity, if I may. And again, India. Um, so, Panima, we organized, I think, a really <clears throat> harrowing um, uh, a conversation about how the LGBTI community in India is, is being hit really disproportionately hard, and particularly the trans community um, and the sort of traditional hijra com communities as well. And, you know, I, I guess my question for both of you is how do we make sure that there is... <clears throat> equity and attention to marginalized people who are, you, you know, they weren't getting health services really at the start. Uh, and how do we make sure that we can reduce their vulnerabilities even after a crisis like this? Gita, do you want to start? I think that these inequities existed before the pandemic and they've been exacerbated because of the pandemic. And I think that what the only hope lies in civil society action in India at the moment, um, the absence of government response or planning has resulted in private citizens and organizations, uh, religious and otherwise coming together to try and help people and um, set up through Twitter accounts and others, uh, ways to share resources. So I think it's the, um, it's civil society organizations, grassroots organizations who are going to have, at this point in time, going to have to help those vulnerable populations, just like I talked about the waste pickers uh, in Pune, right? It's, it's their union that's trying to help. Um, in the long term, I think what this has laid bare is how those inequities get exacerbated and how the most vulnerable populations and their the rates of infection being high among them affects all. Yeah. Like you can't have some protected and others not and be safe. Yeah. That, that realization is, I think, hopefully going to result in some acknowledgement of marginalization um, being something that has a cost for all and that it's time to respond to that. Just, I mean, that's my hope. Gita, this is, this is a very powerful uh, path to take in terms of, I mean, it's being taken for the vaccine, for example. If we have the vaccine and, you know, another country neighboring to us, Mexico, doesn't, you know, we're just as much affected. And the argument in vaccine equity has been that, that we're, the world is together, we need to do that. Why doesn't it happen in the case of populations in one country? It's a very, very tough, um, you know, path to take because for years together, certain populations have been marginalized and have, and they always get hit the hardest. They always get hit the hardest when there is any vulnerability situation. If there is a, you know, flood, I'm talking about even natural disasters, they get hit the hardest. And yet what happens is once that disaster or that 
you know, situation is resolved, people move on and we're back to the same thing. Somehow, uh, you know, the this pandemic may not be, I hope it will be uh, a way where we can emphasize the point that Gita made. That is, if one person is vulnerable, we're all vulnerable. People have, it's a little selfish maybe as an argument in some ways, but I don't care. I'm, I'm willing to go down that path to in order to uh, you know I think we also need to make the argument obviously that you know everybody is created equal and everybody has access should have access to all services but also the argument that that impacts on all of us will make a, dip, a bigger dent is what my feeling is. Gita, sorry. I was just saying that it was the same with HIV right Ben? I know exactly. So exactly. that, that's the lesson we learned from that that yeah. that you know, it is there is a human rights argument, but there's a more instrumentalist argument, right? Which is, if you don't protect all, then everybody is still at risk. That's right. Yeah, and pandemics have a strange way of making that. Point. Yes. And yes. you have this: no one's safe until everybody's safe. And I'm, you know, fine. Let's grab that. Exactly. Also, um, y- y- you know, we have to do what we need to do to make sure that marginalized populations have access to services for the reasons you set out, Panima. And I, I don't care what arguments we use, uh, national security, global security, that that's great. But uh, one of the things that you two are getting at, which I think is actually a point of real optimism, is how we use uh, this dreadful pandemic to help us prepare for future ones. And the idea that uh, health provision has to be really raised as a uh, strategic priority internationally and domestically um, is so important. So I would ask you, if you're a public health policymaker in Delhi or Berlin, what could we really take from the India COVID crisis? What does that teach us? And how can we use that experience in a positive way? Um, Panima, perhaps I could start with you on that. Yeah, I think uh, one of the most important uh, things that we've seen in the pandemic in India, and Gita has referred to it and can talk about it more uh, later, is the power of civil society, which India does not at this current, uh, in this current stage, particularly acknowledge, recognize, encourage, and allow them to participate, listen to them, first of all, just listen to what they have to say, their experiences. If they would involve civil society and civil society organizations like the LGBTQ organizations we talked about and the kind of work they're doing, they are more trusted by their community. And yet, you know, nobody's listening to what what their needs are. That is something I think that we have to start all over. It's unfortunate because India has a very long history of civil society involvement. And uh, to see it, And it's still continuing. It's not over. But the fact that the government does not encourage it and is suspicious of it and worries about what it does makes it really problematic. I'll just mention the one. And the second thing is preemptive action is better than reactive action. And I am tired of us fighting every time there's a pandemic we take. We don't have anything preemptive planned. And I think what this pandemic has done, that's the one positive thing. And I hope it 
materializes is that on the basis of the committee that, for example, Gita is involved in and the independent panel, some really sharp, clear recommendations have come for what should happen in order to be prepared, like they've talked about simulation exercises that government should go through. You can't do a simulation exercise without involving civil society. It will be impossible because you won't know what the people really will do, uh, you know, if there is another outbreak. So there are things of that kind. I think that those recommendations really need to be taken very seriously if we are going to get ahead of this pandemic and any other pandemic that comes our way. So I'm, I am absolutely with you that we really need to engage and embrace all sections of civil society. Absolutely. Absolutely. But Gita, you know, you look at Singapore, Korea, China, and a more top-down approach seems in the short term to have enabled these countries to prevent the kind of epidemics that we've seen in, you know, messy democracies, India, um, the United States, the United Kingdom. So, so what would be the positive message that you would take to policymakers from that, the Indian experience? So that's a false comparator, Ben, because, you, you know, you've taken countries so that are democracies where the leadership was lacking, where the leadership yeah. was um, clearly not up to the task. But if you take democracies like Germany, New Zealand, you mm -hmm. see a different picture, right? Yeah. And so the question is more, what is the type of leadership that we need in this new world of ours, where um, you are going to be faced with many kinds of global threats that affect all. And for that, uh, the term that's you know, currently used is feminist leadership. And it doesn't mean women leaders necessarily, though you're more yeah. likely to get it from women leaders, but it's the nature of feminist leadership, which I um, sort of characterize as being compassionate, being transparent, yeah. being uh, you know, accountable, um, being empathetic, uh, listening. Those are the characteristics of leadership that we increasingly need in order to succeed. Because if you look, there are a lot of people who've said, oh, it's women leaders um, mm. that have succeeded. And here are the various examples yeah. Um, they're not wrong, but that's a that's a correlation that may be um, sort of you know attributing cause and effect, which I think is less to do about whether it's male or female, and more to do with the type of leadership. And those characteristics of leadership are more likely to happen among women because women are socialized to have to to be sort exactly. of forced to compromise to to listen. Um, and that's why women leaders have succeeded in this pandemic more than male leaders. So I would just say that, um, and, and women have suffered more. So we talked about vulnerable populations. We didn't talk about women, but women. the impact on women has been very severe in terms of loss of economic participation, in terms of the care burden, in terms of domestic violence, et cetera. And um, yet from the statistics that I read, Women, even now, in all the task forces, national or global, that are trying to address the COVID pandemic, only 24% of the members of 225 COVID task forces across 137 countries have women on them. You know, have, there's only 24% of the members are women. And so the point, and there are, as I read in the statistic today, 
26 task forces around the world with no women at all. So if you don't hear the perspective of all members of society, LGBT, you know, women, children, if you have no mechanism whereby you can hear that feedback, you're unlikely to create the policy mechanisms that will address the needs of all. So um, I just want to emphasize that point. The second point I want to emphasize that is, is respectfully sort of contradicting a little bit what Purnima said, is that there was a mechanism for preparedness and for actually examining the preparedness that countries had to respond to an, to an epidemic or a pandemic. And that was through the International Health Regulations yes. uh, mechanism. That's a treaty that everybody signed on to, that they will, um, that the, the emergency committees, you know, call for uh, a public health emergency of international concern will result in the following actions. It also had within it a mechanism that WHO implements where uh, member states gather together to evaluate countries' preparedness according to certain criteria. And based on that, rank countries or tell countries that you're missing in this area, missing in that because you need a whole of government approach, et cetera. What we found in this pandemic was that countries that had scored high, such as the US on pandemic preparedness using those tools, in fact, performed the poorest. And so there is a call now to relook at those indicators for pandemic preparedness and say, where did we go wrong? And where they went wrong is they had no indicators for governance. Yeah. Quality of leadership yeah. and the quality of governance. And without those indicators, it doesn't matter what public health measures you have in place, you are not prepared to deal with the pandemic in the way you should deal with it. So there is a call to renew the, the sort of to look again and revise the indicators for pandemic preparedness. And, and put in place a new set of evaluation criteria um, that can help us do it right. So we have the mechanism, the tools didn't work because they were- And, and, and Gita, the, the problem I think was that, as you rightly said earlier, WHO primarily talks to health ministers yes. and health ministers are low on the pecking order. And Absolutely. we've got- it you know, yes. to the people who make decisions. It reminds yes. me of a comment the late Julia Cleves made about the building the AIDS response in the early 2000s, that we were expected to build a palace of Versailles out of twigs. And I think that's, that's a really important lesson for us. And we, we've, you know, we've got to have bricks and mortar um, and we've got to have some power behind us. How yes. do we do that, Panima? You know, I think this has to be um, the way in which it happened in the case of AIDS. I don't think this is just a health issue. This is definitely a much broader issue. And I think the broader UN has uh, right now going through some hiccups in terms of, you know, the Security Council members, the relations between them right now. I don't think the UN is at the top of its game. Uh, and that is part of the problem because governments can hold each other accountable in that mechanism much better, uh, if at all, if at all, I would say. And holding political leadership uh, responsible is also difficult because in the US, we had a different administration when the pandemic is, was at its worst. We have a different one right now. So, you know, 
it it is very di- I, difficult to get into political leadership and how you know it impacts but it does have an impact and if at all it has to make a difference it has to be taken to the broader un and sorted out there as well but i i i i it doesn't mean that who is off the hook who is the one i want to strengthen i really believe needs to take this on and that's why the committee that they are asking for which is the pandemic preparedness one doesn't include health ministers alone they are yeah. talking about heads of state they're talking about private sector leadership they're talking about civil society leadership it's leadership at all levels to come together in order to that is the best way to knock heads in some ways in terms of the political leadership because they will be part of this discussion it's about knocking heads together and getting stuff done so Geeta, do we need a new structure to make sure the resp- world responds better in the future? We you know we've had talk of, you know, a new global fund or a new funding mechanism. I'm I'm with uh, Panima that WHO needs strengthening. I think this is I agree. I agree. Thing, but I agree the WHO needs strengthening. I think the the pandemic preparedness financing facility that's being talked about yeah. is one that the World Bank leadership had talked about a while ago but couldn't quite put in place. I think those kinds of mechanisms have to support WHO. Yeah. Not, you know, so I think at the World Health Assembly we just ended um the the call for WHO still to retain its leadership in in the you know for global health. um was supported by member states i don't think anybody is trying to create an entity separate from who but for who to meet its the expectations that member states have for it it needs to be resourced and it needs to be resourced with core money not with short term project monies that then you know dry up because then you have this constant human resource problem where you have to constantly hire new people again or only be dependent on surge capacity so there are all kinds of you know i will promote uh, the ioac <laughs> report to the world health assembly and tell you that much of the detail that granular detail has been laid out there of what needs to be worked out and i certainly feel the uh, international panel the independent panel for uh, pandemic preparedness and response has also got some great recommendations the question is not now um just to have those recommendations sit on a shelf but to actually yes. resource them put them in place and make them work without that so i think the solutions are now proposed the question is that they need to be put in place through the right amount of support political support money um in order to protect us from the next from the next pandemic so we're coming up to the top of the hour and one question one final question that i ask of all guests uh in this last year and a half how have you kept safe and sane um and particularly are there any tv series you've binged watched <laughs> or books you've read or games you've played that have kept you kept you sane and and happy panima yeah well you know i uh, live uh, with my son and grandchildren that helps a lot because it's family around and yet we all have our own space it keeps me sane because i don't go out much that i think uh, 
safety, I have to now work on how to get out of the house more. Because that is something that is a serious problem. You get used to staying at home and you get used to that security. But you have to learn how to be secure when you're out. And so I have to do a little bit more of that. But I think it, at home, um, I don't uh, read very much now. That's the other thing that's happened. Uh, focusing on things is becoming more difficult. So I watch The Crown, uh, Bridgerton. Um, I watch uh, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. Anything that is not too dark has a lot of music and dancing. I'm fine with it. I can't watch anything dark anymore. I think the pandemic has taken that completely away from me. I can't look upon it profoundly and say, well, this is a message. I'm I don't want profound messages. Enough. <laughs> you, Gita. Yeah, I've stayed sane by staying in touch with friends. And I have to say that Zoom provided the, uh, the possibility for doing that with friends who we di I didn't actually get to see in person for years. Um, so, you know, being able to do that regularly and with some close friends, even in the area, just setting a, a routine that every second Wednesday or every whatever we would meet at such and such time really helped. Um, uh, different from Purnima, I actually read a lot more than I have ever read before in a lifetime, but focused the reading on fiction. So mm -hmm. I was determined to read fictions. A lot of it was depressing and dark, but uh, <laughs> it was beautiful fiction. And this particular set of friends of ours, uh, of mine, who came together regularly, decided that we would do it like a book club, but with no, not the pressure of a book club, that we we're very loosey-goosey about it. So if you didn't finish reading a book in two weeks, no big deal. We just wait another week. So um, that helped enormously. So I, I actually, I counted, I read about 12 books in the last year, which is amazing for me, uh, but also did a lot of TV viewing because it's just my husband and me at home. Um, so caught up on a lot of series that I hadn't seen before or the newer ones. Um, anything that was of quality, was um, a priority for me. I like good theater and good acting and good directing. And so it was, it was good in that way. And when backyard uh, get togethers appropriately socially distanced was possible, we did that too when the weather was good. So that's what got us through. Well, Gita, Panima, thank you so much for uh, this conversation and sharing with our uh, uh, listeners and viewers your thoughts both on what's happened in India and how that impacts the world um, you both are shots in the arm thank you thank you very much thanks Ben well that's it for this episode I hope you enjoyed it uh, thanks to Gita and to Ponima thanks also to Eric Aspera our producer and director from Newsdoc Media and thanks to you. If you've got any comments or questions about this or any other episode, let us know. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Shot Arm Podcast. And you can find us at our website, www.ashotinthearmpodcast.com. Have a safe week and a great week, everybody.